effectively on security and intelligence, uh, particularly in a Canadian context, uh, both past and present. He's the author of four books, as well as various articles, book chapters and so on. Uh, just two in particular, uh, Snitch, like the name, uh, Snitch, <coughs> The History of modern intelligence, the Modern Intelligence Informer, and also Spying 101, the RCMP's Secret Activities at Canadian Universities, uh, 1917 to as well as being uh, an academic and author. Uh, Steve has played a very large role in the development of Canadian studies here in, in Britain. Uh, he's uh, is, uh, for Canadian studies. In fact, he was my predecessor. Um, anyway, very much looking forward to Steve's talk on happy-go-lucky fellows, the 1966 bombing on Parliament Hill, and lone act of terrorism. Just to give you a sort of context to what I'm going to speak about tonight, uh, in September 2014, I signed a book contract with McGill Queen's University Press to do a history of terrorism and counterterrorism in Canada, and that's this work is drawn from that ongoing project. Now, I mentioned the date specifically because it was a month before the attack in Ottawa. Um, lest you think I signed the contract after the attack, it was the other way around. Um, so uh, one of the chapters in the book is going to be uh, looking at lone actor terrorism. And so this, what I'm talking about tonight is drawn from that. But in particular, what I'm doing right now, because I'm on study leave, um, is putting together an article about one particular incident of lone actor terrorism uh, that happened in 1966 that I think is significant and interesting, and part of the gist of this was, uh, and I've, I've got a slide on it, so I'm kind of previewing it, but when the attack happened in Ottawa in 2014, this sort of reaction, this stunned reaction, which is understandable, but this idea of this was completely unheard of in Canada. And you've got a country where you had, in the 1960s, the FLQ um, carrying out bombings over much of the decade. You had the October crisis with kidnappings and a murder. You had the Air India bombing in 1985 in which uh, close to 300 Canadians were killed and 329 people in total. Worst incident of mass murder in Canadian history. So Canada's head, I mean, I'm not going to say Canada obviously is not near the top of the league table when it comes to experiencing terrorism, but it certainly has had its share of terrorism over the last few decades. But where I think it's lacking is in historical memory and in sort of um, acknowledging that this has happened. And then there's this sort of stunned reaction each time. In fact, I wrote a piece for the conversation the day after the um, September uh, 2014 attack, uh, the title of which was Canada Lost Its Innocence a Long Time Ago, because uh, there was a sort of this response of, oh my goodness, you know, actually someone actually even compared it to 9-11. Um, now, sadly, obviously, someone was killed um, by this gunman in Ottawa, and I'll talk more about that. But, I mean, 3,000 people lost their lives on 9-11. I think there's a bit of a different proportion in, in terms of that. So tonight, I'm going to talk about a um, particular incident. Uh, I'm going to sort of tell you about the person who did it. I'm going to contextualize it within the history of lone actor terrorism in Canada and more broadly. Uh, but I'm also going to talk about sort of academic scholarship and maybe ruffle a few feathers in terms of what I'm going to say. Um, so without further ado, sorry, my button is back here. 
here. Uh, so take us, um, and also, so I'm going to read at various points. I'm going to try to just speak to the slides, but I'm going to sort of read my intro and my conclusion, and then various points dip in and out of my text. So um, the date uh, that to start with is 18th of May, 1966. This is not a picture from that day, but this is actually the chamber. In fact, I was there uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was in Ottawa, and I sat in on a question period in fact, I was sitting along the side where that clock on the left is. I was sitting roughly around there, which meant I was overlooking the um, liberal benches. The government side is on that side. And at the back, you can see the chair where the speaker sits. And up behind is the public gallery where the general public who don't have passes from their members go and sit. Um, and that's significant. <coughs> Hansard, the record of parliamentary debate in Canada, contains an unexpected editorial intervention on the afternoon of Wednesday, the 18th of May, 1966. Midway through a response by the Minister of Labour to a motion about the Seafarers International Union, appears a cryptic, italicized edition. Quote, at this point, a loud explosion was heard in the chamber, unquote. For the next few minutes, despite rising chatter among MPs on all sides, the affairs of state carried on uninterrupted. Only when the leader of the opposition rose to inquire about an impending visit by the Deputy Prime Minister of South Vietnam, now we're putting it into context, a country that doesn't exist now, um, did it become apparent that something serious had occurred. John Diefenbaker, the leader of the opposition, was interrupted mid-question by a uh, New Democratic Party MP asking if his colleagues who were doctors could leave the House as their assistance was needed outside. At 3.05 p.m. on the 18th of May, the sitting was suspended. Four medically trained MPs ventured out of the chamber and were directed to a third floor washroom near the then ladies gallery, which actually you can't see in this picture, but it's at this end. It's not a ladies gallery anymore, it's a public gallery, but it's at this end uh, of the chamber. Uh, so they went to the to washroom near the ladies gallery, 75 feet from the prime minister's office. Inside, in a badly damaged marble walled room, they encountered a middle-aged man lying on his back in a pool of blood and exhaling his last breaths. The explosion had severed his right arm at the elbow, mangled his left hand, and shredded his chest and abdomen. Paul Joseph Chartier had just blown himself up with a homemade bomb. Uh, not surprisingly, Chartier's, Chartier's death inside the center block of Parliament Hill caused shock. Now, I'm not going to play this clip, but there's... A wonderful, you can see it on the CBC archives, it's actually the news coverage of the day. And one of the reasons why it's wonderful is because you can see how primitive news coverage was at the time and how, because they don't have a lot of live video, it's very much almost like a newspaper being filmed. So there's a wonderful scene where they go, where they're quoting the um, landlady where Chartier was renting a room in Toronto and they're quoting her verbatim, saying something, describing her as being in her house on the front lawn telling reporters, quote, get the hell off my property, unquote. <laughs> and they're just reading it in deadpan. It's just, um, it just gives you an idea of how limited the technology was. But you can actually see the media coverage uh, if you just Google it, uh, CBC archives. But this is some of the uh, newspaper headlines of the day that gives you an idea of, of the reaction. <coughs> and, of course, there was an attempt to try to understand this. You know, what would you compare it with? So one of the things that was raised in the newspapers was to compare it with the gunpowder plot, that this was the first sort of bomb effort, and of course the gunpowder plot being unsuccessful and this one being partially successful. 
Um, another thing that was invoked was Lee Harvey Oswald, because this was about two and a half years after his assassination uh, of Kennedy. Um, people speculated on the whether the um, the attacker was mentally ill. That was you know all over the newspapers. Um, they can see um, some of the other headlines. They managed to get a hold of Chartier's mother, and she described him as a happy-go-lucky fellow who liked to sing. That was her. Um, she actually got his age wrong as well in the. Uh, <laughs> but she had she had nine children. Actually, she had she had more than nine, but nine who lived to be adults. So. That might be understandable why you might not know the age of all your children. And you can see, again, this, you know, he was a normal man. He wanted to be a star. We'll talk more about that. The, invoking Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, concerns about security, of course, which parallel the concerns after 2014. So how and why Chartier came to detonate a bomb near the heart of Canadian parliamentary democracy is a story in itself. More significantly, the incident and Chartier himself have relevance to the present and not just in Canada. Although not recognized at the time... Chartier was what has become labeled in the 21st century a lone wolf or a lone actor terrorist. His background, his motivation, and his violent acts meld with the characteristics of other lone actor terrorists, both within Canada and externally. His example not only demonstrates that lone actor terrorism, despite the plethora of media coverage, academic attention, and political chatter in the 21st century, is not a, new, uh, not a new phenomenon, but also that those individuals like Chartier can have complex motivations that reflect wider, a wider malaise within societies, within capitalist societies, and partially as a result, they are, such individuals are difficult to detect, deter, and understand. In that respect, within a Canadian context, more attention to lone actor terrorism in the past will provide better context for understanding, but also informing reactions to it and other types of terrorism in the present. And this leads, leads me into what I mentioned at the beginning about this sort of response to 2014. I mean, one of the things I should, I, I'll just mention now is this paper is based on a police file of about 1,300 pages, which is the investigation that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police led, but also the FBI was involved, as were a number of other Canadian police forces, uh, Ottawa, Toronto. Um, and the file is almost completely uncensored, which in my experience of dealing with security files is almost unprecedented. And I think the reason why it's almost uncensored is because it was treated as a criminal investigation and not as a security investigation. If it had been a security file, then probably half of it would be, be censored. I mean, to get FBI reports that are completely uncensored, I think, is, is rather unusual. And I, I think it's a bit of a, a gold mine that way. And one of the reasons why I think this type of material is very useful, and this is a point that Mark Sageman, who's written a lot about terrorism, he's got a new book out called Misunderstanding Terrorism. The point he's made more and over and over again is that academics in the present are at a disadvantage because they can never have complete access to relevant files, intelligence files, or intelligence reports, because of the sensitivity, because of the security associated with them. So they're always, in a sense, playing cards with half a deck. And my argument is that the more further in the past we go, the more that material becomes open and therefore does provide an opportunity for a more detailed case study of, of such individuals, and I would argue who are relevant to the president if they're not seen that way. And so that is, in some ways, is a way of overcoming um, that disadvantage. Now, the other aspect of what Sageman said is obviously some academics are given privileged access to materials. I mean, think of... Um, 
Christopher Andrew, who wrote a history of MI5 and was given access to, to files that none of us will ever see in our lifetime. Um, so, but for the ordinary academic, uh, obviously you don't have access to, to such records. So I'm interested in sort of offering a context because I really think, and again, this is a bit of a cliche that you know, understanding the past helps not only understand the present, but also helps us contextualize and helps direct the response to events in the present. Well, because one of my big fears in terms of the way we, we respond to terrorism is this tendency to overreact, to, to panic, to act as if this is unique. And I think if more and more, if we tried to understand that it's actually occurred in the past, often in, in worse form <coughs> than in the present, that we would, it would encourage resiliency, which I think is ultimately that you're never going to eliminate terrorism. Uh, it's just too difficult, and, and um, as I'll explain in the case today, but the more we encourage a resilient response, especially in a democratic society, the more I, I think we can avoid the, this sort of overreaction and, and this panicked response. So this is just, oh, I forgot about this slide. Um, this is a map of the uh, House of Commons. This is the House of Commons here. So the photo I showed you in the first slide was looking in this direction. Uh, this is the public gallery here. This is where the speaker would sit. Uh, this is the uh, washroom where he blew himself up. Uh, so he was sitting actually in the public gallery with his bomb in his pocket because at that time no one searched him. He had a big heavy jacket on. Uh, he got up, uh, went around to the washroom um, and ignited the fuse, and I'll talk more about it. These are pictures I took in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago. I actually saw where the, the room was where he blew himself up when I was leaving, because as I said, I was sitting over here, and so I walked around, because this is where they screen you for security over here, and it's now a meeting room. It's not, because uh, I actually used the washroom, and it was over, <laughs> over here now. So this is now a meeting room, but the window for it, uh, which you can see in the TV coverage from the day, if you look at the clip, uh, this is the window to the room where he blew himself up in. This is the outside of, of the um, center block on Parliament Hill, if anyone's ever been to, to Ottawa. So these are pictures I took on a lovely autumn day a couple of weeks ago. So this was another event that happened in the center block on Parliament Hill. This was the 22nd of October 2014. Uh, that's Michael Zihaf Bibo, who shot and killed Nathan Cirillo, who was a young a Canadian soldier who was guarding the war memorial. Uh, he shot him and then he managed to get into the center block, fired uh, several shots until he was, was killed. Uh, I think he was shot 31 times um, by the police and by security. And again, I talked about this sort of response, this idea that this was unique and that nothing like this had sort of ever happened in Canadian history. And again, that Canada had... Um, the events that were triggered by that included uh, the Harper government introducing C-51 uh, counterterrorism legislation, and that led to sort of memes. Sure, hopefully everyone knows what a meme is. I wasn't long ago, I didn't know how to pronounce that, but um, these sort of internet things that go around. And this was one of the ones that was put out to, to again, to offer perspective you know, on what had occurred in Ottawa. And this was comparing the number of terror deaths from terrorism in Canada uh, over a 20-year period with the number of murdered and missing Indigenous women. And the reason this was during the Harper period where the Harper government refused to bring uh, set up a special inquiry, which the Trudeau government has now done. So this was sort of contrasting, 
you know, a, a much more serious uh, security threat to indigenous women um, with uh, something that wasn't so serious and, and you know, the comparison was made. Uh, another meme that made its way around at this time of C-51 was this one about you're more likely in Canada to be killed by a moose. And I saw this and I thought, is this true? And so I went and looked and I could only get partial numbers, but it is true that between 1999 and 2003, 105 Canadians were killed in collision. Now I can't say they were always moose. Moose? It's a of moose. Moose. It's a of moose. Um, I can't say they were always moose that they hit, but certainly uh, there were a lot more Canadians killed colliding with animals than were killed by... Um, by terrorism in, in Canada or outside of Canada during, during this period. And then the other was what I mentioned earlier about Air India uh, and the shocking, um, which I still remember from uh, 1985, uh, again, you know, the worst mass murder in Canadian history. No one was ever properly brought account to, to account for. There were two public inquiries. Um, uh, again, this will be a, actually a chapter in, in the book, the final book about uh, Air Air India, uh, because of how significant it was, um, and, and how also the response, it was felt that there was a subdued response from the Canadian government, because many of the people who died were born outside of Canada and came as immigrants, and this perception that they weren't proper Canadians, and so there was there's still this debate about, did the government really underreact, or that did that become sort of, um, I mean, there, I think there was an element of truth in it, uh, and certainly the government was slow to sort of commemorate it, and that's picked up more recently. And we just had the uh, 30th anniversary of that um, uh, last year. So this is where I talk a little bit about the scholarship, and this is where I might actually ruffle some feathers, because this, um, this is where I've got a bit of a pet peeve, I have to say, um, for academic reasons and sort of personal reasons. Um, so I think one of the problems is, the, the, um, is when it comes to scholarship that's written about terrorism, that one of the issues is that there tends to be one academic discipline that dominates um, scholarship on terrorism. Uh, there was a survey in 2004, I don't know if it's been done more recently, that found that this one academic discipline accounted for about 50% of all scholarship related to terrorism. And history was uh, at, I think, under 3%. Um, sociology was, I think, about 8 or 9%. Does anyone want to guess uh, what that might be? Well, international relations or security? Or, or political science, yes. poli-sci, poli yeah. Um, and I, I was struck by this because I was at a conference um, organized by Chris Kirke, uh, someone Tony knows, in Honolulu, of all places, in February. <laughs> and it was really neat. Uh, event because it was talking about terrorism, but it was an interdisciplinary conference. So I was there as a historian, there were sociologists there, there was a communication scholar, and of course there were several political scientists as well. And it was really interesting to see the dynamics and how certain discourses become just sort of unreflected upon and, and terminology and things like that. And then you've got people coming at different perspectives and challenging it. And I, I thought it was quite a really useful uh, exercise. So. So there is a tendency for, because some scholarship is um, in certain directions, a tendency, a danger from, for scholarship at times to be um, 
uh, ahistorical, uh, event-driven. So when 9-11 happens, that's the new norm for international terrorism. It's going to be these big, spectacular attacks. Now, of course, you know, then there was a period where lone actor, that, that's the norm. That's the, the new future. And then, of course, the Paris attack happens. And that, that's the new... And then it's just kind of you know, running around uh, in, in all directions. And, um, I mean, I, I, I have some issues with critical terrorism studies, um, but I think it also does raise valid critiques of some of the dominant scholarship that makes the point that much terrorism research tends towards a historicity, if I mispronounce that, and uh, a contextuality in terms of how we understand it. And I think at times this is reinforced by granting agencies. And I want to single out the um, Government of Canada's Kanishka project. Kanishka is the name of the, the B-747 that was blown up in 1985. And this was set up, uh, came out of one of the inquiries. This was set up by the Government of Canada uh, as a way of acknowledging you know, this horrible uh, crime and encouraging research into terrorism. So they gave money uh, to the Kanishka <coughs> project and again, you know, it's the government of Canada money. They can spend it however they want. But I just want to flag up, there's been very few grants that have... Uh, I counted three out of 37. <laughs> One of those, when I say historical, was post-9-11. So it's kind of historical, contemporary history. So there hasn't been a lot done um, <coughs> historically. Uh, one of the things that also set up was something called the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security, and Society, the TSAS which I am a senior fellow in, and it also uh, has not given a lot out. Um, so I want to move on now to actually talking about lone actor terrorism, and then I'm going to go from the broader context, finally, to talking about the individual who I let off the paper with. Uh, so the interesting thing about lone actor terrorism, surprise, surprise, that there's no agreed definition of what actually a lone actor, just like there's no definition, agreed definition of what terrorism is, there's no agreed definition of what a lone actor terrorist is or a lone wolf or those names used often interchangeably. So some definitions are very broad. Some, one of the most important papers, one that I use a lot in this, actually doesn't even offer a definition and cites people who I think aren't lone actor terrorists. Um, so I use uh, the work of a sociologist, Ramon Spadge, Spadge, I'm not sure if that's a correct pronunciation, uh, which is a very narrow definition. Uh, and you can see the, um, the uh, three aspects of it, it's people who operate individually, who don't belong to an organized terrorist group and who do their operation without any direct outside command or hierarchy. Now, of course, it takes us back to, well, what is terrorism? And, and I, I do address that, I mean, in this. And, and to me, it's um, uh, ideologically or politically motivated violence carried out by non-state actors, because there is something called state terrorism uh, directed at non-combatants. I mean, that's drawing aspects I mean, there are common aspects in many of the definitions, which are like 100-plus definitions. So. But that's, that's the narrow definition I'm trying to use. So what about lone actor terrorists? <laughs> this is like a rogues gallery now of um, lone actor terrorists. This, and I, I emailed people and said, can you think of any lone actor terrorists in Canadian history? And uh, I got a couple of responses that, that were quite useful. Um, and this 
is the list that I came up with, uh, which contains 14 names. And I got it in chronological order. Uh, the first lone actor terrorist was Patrick Whelan, who shot and killed an Irish-Canadian MP um, because he was motivated by Fenianism, actually, again, in downtown Ottawa. In fact, just over 100 metres from the war memorial, where the attack occurred in 2014, is where the Irish-Canadian MP was shot and killed in 1868. Now, I've put a couple of X's up, and the reason I put the, this first X is because this is the only... Uh, image that is not of the attacker, but is actually of the victim. And what happened was in Victoria in 1918, a Chinese barber who was a member of the Chinese National League shot and killed a Chinese cabinet minister and then killed himself. And that's actually the picture of, it was an education minister in the Chinese government. Uh, he was shot and killed. This is the man I'm talking about today. That's Chartier. You can see the big gap between these and that. Um, and then some of the others. This is Mark Lapine, who uh, notoriously, famously uh, killed 14 female engineering students in Montreal in December 1989. Uh, actually, it'll be the anniversary coming up, the 6th of December. Um, and this is an attack that occurred in August of this year. Aaron Driver, who uh, had a homemade bomb and a backpack, wanted to go to a mall was surrounded by the police, tried to detonate the bomb, and then was shot dead by the RCMP. Uh, the other X is over this man, uh, his last name is Ali. And the reason why I have an X is because he's only accused, he uh, is accused of taking a knife, going to a Canadian Armed Forces recruiting centre and stabbing people in Toronto in March and shouting political slogans. So one of the problems, I, I, one of the things that really annoys me about media coverage and even some academic coverage about acts of terrorism is there's this automatic assumption people are guilty before they've actually gone to trial. So I always, often when I tweet it, I add alleged terrorism plot, alleged terrorist attack. So this, it, he is an alleged uh, lone actor terrorist. And some of these individuals, by the way, are uh, alive. Um, uh, this man, Roger Warren, uh, was involved in a very contentious mining strike in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. And the uh, mine company brought in strike breakers, or scabs as you might call them, and he planted a bomb that killed nine uh, strike breakers uh, and was eventually convicted and went to prison, but is now was paroled in 2014. Uh, Denny Lorty, who was a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, who had mental health issues, as many of these people do, took a gun, went to the National Assembly in Quebec City, shot and killed three people, wanted to attack the government of René Lévesque, the PQ government. Um, he eventually was convicted, got mental health care, and is, was uh, eventually released um, from prison. So what are the common characteristics? Now, <laughs> there's a rather clear common characteristic which I think is really fascinating, and again, is one of these things that often does not get discussed. You know, the focus is on, oh, were they motivated by religion, far-right extremism? Well, almost all of them are men, and I think there is much more room for uh, masculinity studies, for uh, gender uh, analysis, uh, when it comes to understanding, and I'm going to raise some of these issues in, in the paper, um, you know, sort of toxic masculinity that leads uh, to, to violence. But 
Um, the, there's a paper by uh, Paul Gill, John Horgan, and um, I can't remember the third author that has a database of I think 119 lone actor terrorists, and their total is like 96.7% are men. Now they're I use their work, but they're one of the ones that have a bit broader definition. Oh, actually, they don't have any definition, but they have people that I don't think are lone actor terrorists. So you can see the uh, gender, you can see the average age, um, which is not young by any means. You can see where Chartier fits there. Uh, the method used, uh, the number of deaths, which again is horrible, but it's obviously fairly small compared to, say, Air India. Um, almost half the attackers died during the attack. Uh, it's becoming more prevalent. Uh, you can see nearly half the attacks have been since 2012. Mainly people motivated by Islamist extremism, although one of the ones um, had an anger towards the PQ government again in 2012. The night of the provincial election went with a gun and shot and killed a man and wounded someone else. He was just convicted this summer and just was sentenced, I think, to 20 years in prison. And some evidence of mental illness uh, close to half. And that is higher than what other studies have found. But all, of the, all the studies agree that when it comes to lone actor terrorists, there is a much higher prevalence of mental illness compared to, quote unquote, regular terrorists who are part of groups. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it, if you're working within a group versus working on your own. There might be a reason why you're on, on your own. So again, we can get how you define mental illness and all of that. But um, uh, certainly there is some prevalence. Now, to me, the fact that there is mental illness isn't, that doesn't necessarily, isn't the only reason why they carried out an attack. And I still think it, you, you can be justified in calling them terrorists. If, if there's evidence that they're acting out of ideological uh, motivation. Finally, we get to, um, to the man um, we're focusing on today, um, Paul Joseph uh, Chartier. Oh, by the way, he, uh, he wore a toupee. Um, I don't know if he had his toupee on when he blew himself up. I don't think that he did, but he did wear his, and that was commented on that he had wore his toupee, and people knew he had a toupee. Um, he was born in 1921, so actually the newspapers said he was 45, his mother said he was 38 to 40, he was actually 44. Um, and he was born, and I just noticed this tonight as I was going through my slides, that actually it looks like Joseph is actually his first name, because everywhere else it's the other way around. And then he was called Paul Joseph Chartier, but it looks like on his birth certificate um, it was the other way around. His parents emigrated from eastern Canada, I believe they were French-Canadian, uh, they moved to Alberta in, I think, 1910. He, as I said, was part of a very large sort of French Catholic family, um, one of nine children who made it to adulthood. And um, he, so he grew up in Alberta. He left school at grade nine at age 15, started working on the farm. Then his brother got him a job working in uh, Northwest Territories in a gold mine, which included him uh, using dynamite. Um, so he had some knowledge of, of explosives. He then joined the Royal Canadian Air Force and served in the RCAF, although he never left Canada from 1943 to 1945. His father was in the hotel business, owned a number of hotels. So um, Chartier eventually bought a hotel with one of his brothers in Mopal, Manitoba. And um, it looked like that was going to be his future. 
1952, he got married uh, to a woman who was uh, 14 years younger than him, who was actually a teenager. And, and this is where things begin to go wrong. Uh, his business opportunity, his businesses start to go under. He buys a, I think a dry cleaning company for, and it doesn't last for more than a few months. Uh, one of his brothers actually has to get a lawyer because he lends him money. And then when Chartier's marriage sort of uh, breaks up, his own brother has to get a lawyer to get the money back from him. And he ends up being involved in a bunch of schemes and a bunch of different jobs. He ends up, uh, even ends up in Alaska uh, driving a, like a lumber truck and has his own haulage business in Edmonton. And uh, this becomes a bit of a, uh, the story of his life in the 1950s. Now, his, as I said, his marriage uh, breaks up. He separates in 1958 and divorces in 1961. And his wife, after he, his ex-wife, after he died, told McLean's Magazine that he had abused, physically abused her um, while they were together. Uh, she also said he was someone who didn't want children and couldn't hold a job or didn't want to stay in a job because as I said, he was drifting between job after job. So in 1961, almost to make a new start, he legally moves to the United States. <coughs> and these are some of the documents, his declaration of attention. He gets a bunch of different jobs. He works as a hotel detective in New York. He works as a detective in Los Angeles. He ends up in Miami. He owns a gas station, petrol station, for a brief period of time. That goes under. He owns a petrol station in New York. That goes under. Uh, so he drifts around at different jobs. He gets a girlfriend in California. And all the love letters he wrote to her are in the, um, in the police file. And he also, and this is quite common with lone actor terrorists, he has repeated run-ins with the law. Not major run-ins, but smaller things. Uh, he's involved in a, a charge with assault. And one of the cases when he was in Edmonton, he was haul, haul, using this truck to haul materials. The police stopped him because they were worried it was overweight, uh, the truck was overweight, and he just sped off, sort of went around the corner and dumped the entire load out on the road, um, and then he was charged with uh, public mischief or something like that. So these are some mugshots uh, that were taken. So he was, he was arrested in, you can see the Los Angeles mugshot on the right. Uh, he was arrested in Edmonton. I think he got in trouble in Toronto. He definitely was, this is a rest form in Miami where he was charged with assaulting a seven-year-old landlady or something like that, although the charges were later dropped. So he's sort of spiraling downward, uh, increasing problems with the law, uh, moving in and out of jobs. And you can see um, between 1962, yeah, read that title while I'm reading the... Um, between 1962 and 1966, he had at least 10 jobs and 11 addresses. He had wrote love letters to his girlfriend in California in 1965 from four different addresses in Toronto. Um, afterwards, after his death, when they did this extensive interview, um, the, uh, one employer described him as a drifter, another said he was an oddball, another said he was a loner. Now, he cut a record because um, apparently he could sing. So he cut a record, which he sent to record companies, and he said, if it sells, I want 75% of the royalties. And when he was in California, he had a film made of him playing the piano and singing. Uh, although the person who made the film later told the FBI that he could tell he wasn't going to have a music career based on... Uh, so this was okay, but it was not a professional voice. And most bizarrely of all, he wrote an autobiography, a semi-fictional autobiography under a pseudonym, um, 
that he called what you should know, sex, a biography of Paul Roberts, life on the Alaska highway while it was being built, and he probably can't read the bottom bit, but it's, this story will help with Disney, dizziness, sore back, and mental health. So it's kind of a self-help memoir. And a police, when the, he had like, a, he spent hundreds, hundreds of dollars in the 60s now, thousands of dollars, to get like a thousand copies made. And um, it was like 36 pages long. You can't see if the price is $1.50. I don't think he ever sold a single one, although he often gave them up to people when he met them. And the police, when they found this, you know, here's definitive evidence he's mentally ill, because um, he talks a lot about sex in it. And the thing that is, I think, really troubling is he has, there's a very dysfunctional thing to do with sex in this book. Uh, um, he talks about having sex, that you should take sleeping pills when you have sex. Uh, he clearly, in the love letters, had some sort of dysfunctional sex relationship with his girlfriend. And the thing that was most troubling of all is he talks about being 13 and having a sex- sexually explicit conversation with one of his sisters. And I was mentioning this to a, a friend who uh, works in the NHS with um, sexual abuse victims. And, I mean, just describing him, she... I mean, again, this isn't a clinical definition, but she thought there, you know, there could have been sexual abuse in his background, which obviously in the 1960s, this isn't something that was going to be talked about. But now, I th- and again, that doesn't explain why he went on what he did, but there is some deep dysfunction uh, that's evident in his, in his memoir. So... This, he, he publishes this, as I said, his spiral, his downward spiral gets worse and worse. I mean, one of the, I think one of the saddest things is you can see his job applications and he repeatedly lies on his job applications. So he puts he doesn't have a criminal record. He puts he's still with his wife and has two children. He puts that he grew up in the U.S. and went to school. Like he's trying to create a new, and also I guess trying to think what employers might um, like. And he keeps getting jobs, keeps getting fired because he was... Uh, had issues with authority and, and, and things such as that. So that brings us to the uh, final chapter of his life, which was April to May of 1966. He turned up at one of his brothers who lived in, in Virginia and told the brother that he was going to New York City to give it another try there. Instead, he drove back to Toronto. In fact, he abandoned his car in Buffalo, New York. I don't know how he got from Buffalo to Toronto and rented um, his last residence in uh, April of, uh, of 1966. He then set out on his, what he called an operation. This is the word he used. This was an operation which he said he'd been thinking about for over a year. And that was to carry out this attack at Canada's parliament. So he wrote out, first of all actually he wrote to the House of Commons and asked whether he would be allowed to make a speech to the House of Commons. And they said no. And so he wrote up this speech that he would give, which was called If I Was President of Canada. And he sent it off to the newspaper, the Edmonton Journal, back sort of his hometown newspaper. And he said, Dear Sir, I would like you to hold this and print it um, when time requires it. And he sent it off a week, May 11th, which is a week before the attack. And he wrote up this, I, I don't have the whole thing, but it's like, it was 23 pages long. He used carbon paper. I had always forgotten about it. I remember as a child, some of you were too young to know what carbon paper was, but carbon paper was something, if you were typing something, you put a piece of carbon paper and it would cover it through to the, it was, 
I know, it's, I just brought back memories of that. So he made copies of this. He sent off a copy to the newspaper. And then he went and bought dynamite. And I think this was the most troubling thing I, I came across. For $4.10, he bought 10 sticks of dynamite, um, blast uh, detonators, and fuse. And he just simply went into a place and said, gave a pseudonym and said, I'm going prospecting in the north. And they sold him um, the dynamite. In fact... The coroner's jury that looked into it, one of their recommendations was that all future purchases of dynamite that the police be informed of. So he bought the dynamite. He uh, began, they found uh, jottings where he was planning out how long it would take for the fuse to burn. He he overestimated by one and a half times how long the fuse would take, they realized. Which I always thought strange because he clearly had experience with dynamite, but for whatever reason he uh, miscalculated. And then on the 17th of May, he set off for Ottawa, went by bus overnight. Uh, He arrived in the early morning in Ottawa. He rented a cheap hotel over in Hull. And he visited a shop called Green Dragon Limited, which I was amazed to see find is still on Spark Street in Ottawa. I went to the address, assuming it would be something else, and it closed last for good last autumn, a year ago, but it was open until um, uh, this past autumn, and I think run by the same woman who's later interviewed by the police. Um, he bought a slow-burning paper used in fireworks, which he used, obviously, in the bomb. He went to the hotel in Hull. He bought several bottles of alcohol. He assembled the bomb, he packed it with screws and nails and things like that, shrapnel, um, and, and put it together. And then on the 18th of May, he left early to get to the House of Commons so he could be get a front row seat, and he got a front row seat in the public gallery, so up above, behind the speaker, where the press sat. There were several hundred school children in the gallery that day. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, he, um, he went out, went to the washroom, um, he, had to, he was carrying three fuses, and for whatever reason, he lit the shortest of the three fuses. And based on the length of it, it was about five to seven seconds after he lit it that he blew himself up. No one else was in the washroom, so no one else um, was injured. But um, So the question then, of course, was why did he do it? This was what bedeviled the police, and the FBI referred to its investigation as a Lee Harvey Oswald-type investigation, the RCMP wanted to know, did he have involvement in radical politics? Was he a communist? This is the context of the Cold War. You know, did he have uh, help? Were, were there other people involved? Was this a, a plot? And so there's this extensive police investigation that goes on for weeks. FBI offices in Miami, L.A., New York, in Virginia are all involved. Edmonton Police, Ottawa, Toronto. They can find no evidence of any um, other involvement of any, anyone else or that had any involvement in radical politics. So ultimately they decide he is clearly mentally ill. The problem is they can't find any clear evidence that he's mentally ill. They looked for evidence that he had been institutionalized. There was no evidence. All they could find was that in 1965 he went to the General Hospital in Toronto complaining of headaches and two doctors agreed that it was psychological um, I think one of them called him psychotic, um, and they gave him Valium prescriptions. And many of the people they interviewed said he seemed completely normal. Other than he seemed alone, they didn't have many friends, and you get the feeling that this is a man who's got a lot of anger 
and alienation. So ultimately, what we have to look to is what he actually wrote. Because he wrote this for a reason, as many, or as lone actor terrorists do, because they want people to know why they've done what they've done. They want it to be clear. And so he wrote this manifesto, the original version, and then he um, uh, sort of edited it while he was in Hull at, at the hotel. And he makes it clear, and I have to say, when I'm writing this and working on this, the whole US election's going on. So his manifesto talks about the political system being rigged, talks about uh, the ordinary working man not getting a fair shake, uh, that everything is you know, against them. Because this is an era of, um, I'm sure Phil can, uh, political scandals in Canada, the Pearson and Diefenbaker and all of that. So this is going on in the background. But the idea that the whole system was rigged and fixed against ordinary working people. Now, he doesn't talk about himself specifically, but you can interpret that he sees himself as representative of what's happening more broadly. And even in his manifesto, he talks about an increase in minimum wage. Um, he talks about privatizing the CBC because uh, it's a waste of money, waste of taxpayers' money. He criticizes big business. Um, so this is some of his, what he wrote. Um, and I put a couple of passages. So this is one of the passages. Why should we live in a tormented world? I don't like everything about communism, but this country, this country is getting more like it every day. What we used to call capitalism used to be a good thing until big business took over. Now it's more just like communism. As workers, nothing to say, no chance to get ahead. If at least the lords of big business would stop and think, it's us that put them there. If they would only take a little consideration the working man, this would do it for his president. And then the blame, he saw the big villain as being politicians, that he was going to offer them a blast to wake you up. For one whole year, I've thought of nothing but how to exterminate as many of you as possible. And the coroner's jury decided what he was going to do was light the bomb, <coughs> go back to the public gallery, pack with shrapnel, and throw it in among the MPs, the prime minister, and everyone was down there for question period. Now, whether he had second thoughts, whether he was he smelled of alcohol, he was probably intoxicated as well, whether he was just incompetent, how he ended up blowing up in the bathroom is, I mean, we'll never know. But I mean, it, he clearly had a motivation. The importance of history in relation to lone actor terrorism becomes evident through a detailed case study of Paul Joseph Chartier. It does so not through revelations of how Chartier could have been detected and stopped ahead of his bombing. In fact, it is the opposite. It illustrates the certainty of uncertainty. Chartier did not materialize on the radar of the police in part because of his isolation. Though he appears to have suffered from mental health issues, the evidence as to the extent of these and how they may have contributed to his decision to carry out the bombing remain unknowable despite a comprehensive police investigation of all facets of his life, including medical records. Instead, he was a harbinger of the future in relation to how lone actor terrorists reflect a toxic masculinity with strong elements of anger and alienation. In a Canadian context, before Chartier, lone actor incidents involved assassinations of individuals with clear political overtones. After Chartier, there would be others lashing out at targets as a result of similar forces that drove the Parliament Hill bomber. These forces of alienation and anger remain and combine to create a toxic masculinity that leads to violence, not only among lone actor terrorists, but mass murderers as well. In fact, there's been a recent piece saying, actually, is there really that much difference other than, you know, one might have a political motivation that between sort of, um, uh, you know, someone that would go on a shooting spree, uh, you know, without a clear motivation versus someone that is on, again, this is different from, quote unquote, regular terrorists, but uh, the, the, there might be some overlap there. 
History suggests that trying to detect lone actor terrorists such as Chartier is a fool's errand. A better approach is to reduce the access that such, such individuals have to destructive weaponry. Hence, I mentioned the jury recommending you can't just go and buy dynamite. Uh, tighten security where possible and practical. Interestingly, one of the issues in 1966 was there was confusion between the various police forces on Parliament Hill, because you have the RCMP, but you also have the Ottawa police, and you have the parliamentary police. The exact same thing happened in 2014, and that led to major changes, um, but the re the, this was ignored in 1966. Uh, Tighten security where possible and practical. The addressing of masculinity and men rife with alienation and anger, and most importantly, resiliency based on the inevitability of such future attacks. There was recognition of some of these factors at the time of Chartier's attack. In the flood of verbiage in the immediate aftermath of the 66 attack, a more reflective perspective was offered by an NDP member of parliament, Douglas Fisher, who later went on to be a journalist. His words appearing under the title, The Element of Terror, could have been republished in October 2014 after lone actor terrorism once again occurred in the center block of Parliament Hill, and the relevance would have been exactly the same. Quote, it can't happen here, it did, it has, we may have a new element in our politics of the most terrible kind, largely because it is so wayward and undetectable.